Что, ребята, как дела? Что, тиха украинская ночь, да, как говорил великий украинский писатель? Все ли у вас хорошо, ребятки? Нравятся ли вам наши байрактары? Profcast, a series of conversations providing Western listeners with the background, context, and history to understand Russia's war on Ukraine. I'm Sam Bach, and with me as always are my co-hosts Mike Williamson and Andrew Denary. Today we're going to be tackling a topic that's really been implicit in the podcast so far. What is the U.S. interest in continuing to provide Ukraine the support it needs to win the war? In addition to taking on what we consider to be the best arguments uh, for this cause, we're going to also take it on the other side and see what are some of the best counter-arguments that we've heard out there and address them with the same seriousness that we're giving the pro. With that said, let's jump right into it with the pros, and then we're going to take it on to the ante. So, Andrew, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Um, I mean, I think one thing about the Russia's war in Ukraine and U.S. support for Russia's or for, for Ukraine in defending itself um, against Russia is there's something for everyone. Uh, if you, like Sam and I, want to do U.S. Uh, geopolitics on the cheap, this is a good way to do that. If you think that uh, the U.S. should be a moral actor in the world, um, then this is a, a, also an, a big opportunity for the U.S. to um, act on its values and a more value-based uh, foreign policy. Um, if you oppose genocide anywhere in the world, this is also a great um, way to support Ukraine against Uh, the people that want to see it cease to exist as a country. But I'll start off with the first one there. Um, this is really what I think, you know, even if you don't care about Ukraine, um, Western interests are at stake. Crucial Western interests are at stake in Ukraine in that Russia, we know, is an adversary to the U.S. and the U.S.'s allies in Europe. We've seen this for the past, you know, decade plus. Um, and this is, a you know, really an opportunity to weaken Russia to support Ukraine and to um, improve prospects for security in Europe, which is inherent in the U.S.'s interest because the U.S. is the important member of NATO and Russia seeks to threaten not only Ukraine and its existence, but also the, the quote-unquote former Warsaw Pact states, um, many of which are now in NATO. Right, exactly. No, so Andrew and I, so as a background listeners, um, When we were doing uh, the kind of initial meetings on this episode, Andrew and I kind of came at this from a very similar lens, which um, he just articulated, which is let's try to make the case for people who might not necessarily care about the Ukrainian cause in a moral sense. Mike, is, Mike came about it from the moral lens, and we're going to discuss that in just a second. But I think there's real uh, strategic interests to be gained here that you don't have to care about the Ukrainian people at all to have them help realize. What do I mean by that? Um, Right now, we're, all the U.S. is doing to contribute uh, to the Ukrainian cause is sending material aid, as in you know weapons and all that stuff, as well as intelligence. We have not lost a single drop of U.S. blood, and the monetary cost that we've been spending on the war effort is really relatively cheap. You know, you're going to see billions thrown around with a B. And it's if I could actually be specific on it, it's been 52 billion pledged so far. Yeah, uh, of which half of half of which has been straight military goods. Exactly. Uh, 9 billion of which was humanitarian, 15 billion of which was financial. For context, the U.S. total defense budget is 715 billion. So the amount of military aid that we've given to Ukraine so far is only 3.5% of our total U.S. defense spending. And, and to accentuate that point more, that's 3.5% of our defense spending. And the defense spending is a relatively, relatively small part of the U.S. federal budget as a whole. So, you, you uh, know, billions it's, sounds it's, like a lot it's of money. It's smaller than the other 
it's smaller than the other pieces of the pie, but it's still pretty large. Right. Well, I mean, you know, the entitlement, Social Security, Medicaid, um, definitely dwarf it. But, you know, th that aside, the point is, you know, billions to us sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But within the scope of the U.S. federal government, we are not spending that much. And I think we are seeing tremendous returns. Andrew said that we see that, th that Russia is a strategic competitor to the United States. Mike and I do a podcast on China as well. We see China as the main geostrategic rival to the U.S. But um, Russia ain't no slouch, you know, despite what their uh, battlefield antics have shown, and our ability to weaken them at a relatively small monetary cost and absolutely bloodlessly is a really, really, really good deal. That's why Andrew led in with uh, the phrase that we were talking about, which is geopolitics on the cheap. We are achieving great strategic benefit here for very little cost. Um, and Mike, do you have anything you want to get in on that point? Well, I mean, I'd like to justify exactly what you're saying. I mean, it, it could be easy to say that Russia's an adversary because we've sort of made it one and maybe they wouldn't have poked at us if we hadn't been messing around in their backyard. Like that's a legitimate strain of argumentation that's been made throughout this entire war. Um, regardless of what you think about how we got to this position, Russia, unlike China, is the only actor like truly posed to pose a threat to NATO. Like they could have just poked at Estonia one day. And if Article 5 had been triggered and no one responded to it, like, you could very rapidly... Like, there were voices in the American body politic that were saying, why should we go to war over Tallinn uh, if that were to happen? You're, you're not invested in this topic at all, are you? Maybe, maybe <laughs> not. But, like, I, but, but like seriously, like, Mike, Mike's over in Russia's a, right there. Mike, Mike is in they're on the European Tallinn, continent. Estonia. They're on... They're on <laughs> I, I am in Estonia, that is correct. Um, but no, I mean, Russia's actually on a... They're, at, they're in a geographical place where they can legitimately cause a puncture and fracture in NATO. Um, but beyond that, I mean, yeah, they've been meddling in our affairs for a long time. Hell, I mean, they did the same thing that we're doing right now in Vietnam on an even grander scale. Um, they've, go ahead, Andrew. No, f finish your thought. I was just going to jump in with two thoughts. Uh, well, I was going to say that they've also been a big, big, big part of why U.S. energy policy has gone the the derelict direction that it is that it has, although we'll leave that to the side for now. It's maybe beyond the scope of what we're. That's an to upcoming talk about right episode. Now. Spoiler alert! But that is an upcoming episode. Yeah, just two things for me on on um, Sam's bit on on the billions, right? We are talking about big numbers in you know real terms, fifty two billion dollars for Ukraine. You know, you could reasonably. Uh, I think I don't think we'd criticize Americans for seeing kind of sticker shock at that number, but when we think about um, the strategic. Uh, competitors, Russia, China, and we think about how expensive the Cold War was uh, to kind of oppose Russia over in the Soviet Union over decades and how many trillions, tens of trillions of dollars that was spent on that, defeating Russia in Ukraine and weakening Russia and ensuring that they're um, a less strong strategic competitor is a massively good investment. And the other point is the Biden administration, when they, uh, you know, took office last year, uh, said that, you know, they wanted to multiple times to park Russia and focus on China. And that at the moment was bad policy because Russia was still a huge strategic competitor. Um, taking uh, resources and focus away from Russia was um, not in U.S. interests, even though, yes, it's true that we need to focus more on China in the long term. Now, with Russia more closely as an adversary to U.S. and Western interests, we have the opportunity to pursue what was a bad or flawed policy and may turn it into a good policy by weakening Russia in the near term, and then we can focus on China. 
Exactly. Like, to reiterate that, and that's a great point, Andrew, think about this in terms of classical military context. Like, it is much harder, it is more than two times as hard to fight a two-front war as a one-front war. And, you know, if you see the the globe with the U.S. in the center of it, as it rightly should be, because we're the best, um, then you can see <laughs> on our east, you know, we have uh, Russia to contend with, and our west, we have China. And if we're able to deteriorate Russian capacity to the point that it cannot credibly you know, continue on with its antics in in the European continent as it did in 2014. Again, it launched a land war, not to the same degree, but it invaded Crimea um, in 2014. And if we can prevent that from occurring, not forever, but certainly maybe for the next 10, 20 years, uh, some length of time, that allows us to focus on what I think is our bigger strategic uh, competitor, China, with the seriousness and one-mindedness that that deserves. One final point for me on this um, I think the U.S. body politic is rightly feels snake bitten by U.S. Um, activities in Afghanistan and the number of people we lost, the amount of time we spent there. And I think a lot of people rightly say we don't want these kind of forever wars. But that's kind of a poor argument um, in this applying that argument that, you know, the US, Ukraine is not a forever war. Um, we actually have the chance to do a lot of good for in the world and for U.S. interests without spilling you know, the kinds of American blood that we saw in Afghanistan, in Iraq, because if we don't defeat Russia here in Ukraine, and we do have to defend our NATO allies in the Baltics or in Poland, when Russia does come for them, which Putin and the Kremlin have said multiple times that they will do, then we will be obligated to defend uh, those countries with American lives. And that will be a much worse outcome. And Andrew, that is such an important point that he's making right now, because my, my fear is that so much of Americans thinking on foreign policy, specifically on military event, interventions abroad, um, they're, they're tainted with this forever war stigma, right, from our recent experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. Both of those countries were essentially broken, governmentless places by the time we took over. Like, we, we overthrew the Iraqi yeah. government and then attempted to rebuild it. This was These were nation-building exercises. You don't just... Like, do that in a generation. That legitimately does take a very long, committed, determined presence to achieve. No one has to rebuild a Ukraine. I mean, maybe physically we have to rebuild some buildings at this point, but, like, we're not trying to build a new nation here. This country has existed. It has a functioning democracy. Um, so, like, I really want to impress that upon people. Like, all that has to happen is Russia leaves and the war is over, assuming there's not a round two, like, 15 years down the line. But... I just wanted to highlight that point. Of yeah, Andrews. and to, to, again, highlight even more points, there is a difference between sending, like, when, when I mentioned up top, this is bloodless. There is another element to this as well, which is that there's a huge difference between sending your troops into a place to enforce your will on, like, your your will and your vision on what that place should look like, you know, what the type of government should be, the, the, the institutions, the people, all that sort of stuff, versus this group of people over here want to defend themselves and we're sending them the means to be able to do that. Like, not just in terms of U.S. blood and treasure, blood specifically, but conceptually, these are enormously different things. Here in Ukraine, you have a people who are demonstrating that this is what they want. You know, we talk about real preference a lot in this podcast. The Ukrainians are willing to fight and die for the, their country and we don't have to do anything to, like, convince them or, like, you know, sell them the grand vision of... Um, you know, democracy as a good, that is what they want. And we are just helping them get that, again, relatively on the cheap. So um, th this is kind of bleeding into an anti-argument, but I think it actually flows naturally um, because, you know, one of, one of the uh, most common arguments against it is just what they were discussing, which is the, the anti-forever wars. And I think that there is an enormous, clear, categorical difference between our adventurism abroad in 
uh, the Middle East and what we are doing in Ukraine, which is supporting the people in their objectives to remain free. Uh, so with that, um, you, I, I feel like we might have played this out. We can pro- obviously come back to it later. But is there anything you guys want to add on either kind of the forever war topic, which probably should get a little bit more play, or the um, geopolitics on the cheap idea of Ukrainian defense? Uh, do you want to explore the forever war? Yeah, thing exactly. Yeah. Where, where would you like to take it? So I think a good topic to explore, and this isn't something that we discussed previously, but like what are the – limits to U.S. support of Ukraine. You know, obviously the war is going at a relatively fast pace um, right now, I think compared to a lot of previous conflicts in the world which have dragged out for years. You know, right now we can potentially see the end in sight given the Ukrainian rapid advance. But let's say it settles back into another uh, World War I-style stalemate trench warfare. Um, you know, at what point, and this, this isn't maybe like a strictly monetary perspective, but like at what point does it does the U.S. support for Ukraine become less of a good idea? Is there like a year limit, a dollar limit, any any sort of stuff like that? Or is it kind of just good in perpetuity? Is it a blank check, which is a criticism of um, the U.S. support of Ukraine that we just are, you know, forever committed, there's no end in sight, all that sort of stuff? Well, I, yeah, I don't think it's it's a blank check. I mean, I, I do think when we talk about um, U.S. defense spending, European defense spending, NATO defense spending, I mean – these are things that we think about on a yearly basis. You know, these, there's a National Defense Authorization Act every year for how much money we allocate to American defense. And, you know, NATO has a similar thing where each country pledges a certain amount every year. Um, the war in Ukraine is now the most important element of European defense and of U.S. support uh, for European security, which you know is our main uh, security focus kind of in uh, this Western Hemisphere. So... Um, not a blank check, but I think it's in U.S. interest for this kind of support to continue over many years because it's so important to the stability and prosperity, um, not only of the U.S., but of our, our crucial allies in Europe. Mike, do you have anything on that? Because I actually want to push back on Andrew a little bit on that topic. Uh, okay. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so, Andrew, I think you know a common criticism of this war is that it is literally on the European doorstep, and we are still you know, by far the largest contributor to the Ukrainian defense. And yes, you know, Germany has made future commitments, whatever that's worth, to increase its um, defense spending uh, to the 2% NATO target and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, I think a... um, I think a very real criticism of the way that the U.S. has gone about this is that we've subsidized the Europeans in terms of their own defense spending. Like they are not spending what they should in order to uh, prevent a conflict which more immediately impacts us. And you can you know make an argument that like oh well yours ab- wars abroad and conflict and you know issues abroad always eventually come home to the United States. Um, but at the same time, it you know it seems like we're helping Europe not take this as seriously as they need to, and our continued involvement is only. Um, propagating more bad behavior on their part. I actually, I actually agree with you in part. Um, certainly in Western Europe, uh, those countries, you know, bar the UK, have not done enough. Uh, Germany has, you know, provided significant aid, but it hasn't been lethal aid and it's come really slowly. Uh, for example, the Germans promised uh, the Iris T air defense that we're seeing now being sent to Kiev. They promised that six months ago. And it only took, you know, more attacks on Kiev from uh, Iranian drones and rocket attacks for them to actually send it. So, like, totally agree that the Germans and other Western Europeans, the French, Macron, who's been cowed by Putin numerous times, is a goddamn mess. But the Baltics, and Mike can speak to this in Estonia, other parts of Europe do take this really, really seriously. 
Latvia has spent an unbelievable amount of money um, of, of their defense budget in Ukraine. Lithuania, the same. Poland was literally asking for permission to take a unilateral security mission into yes, Ukraine. Poland, the same. Estonia, the same. And so the countries that understand the Kremlin threat really, really well and see it as an ex- existential threat to their existence as countries and their people, um, I think have done even more uh, than you know we could reasonably expect them to do. And so in that sense, I do think it's incumbent upon the U.S. to continue support because it's not only Ukraine we're talking about. We're talking about the Baltics. We're talking about Poland while also leaning on our allies in Western Europe to provide more because you're absolutely right. They should do that. So something else that matters here, I, I think... I think um, the time to have taken this seriously and actually be prepared for it has passed quite a long time ago. Like military production takes quite a long time to ramp up. You can't just flip the switch once you're actually in need. Um, so at this point, the amount of military aid that's been given to Ukraine, um, it's it's about like two thirds of it has come from the United States and a third has come from Europe and other assorted countries. Uh, but with the financial aid that's actually keeping the Ukrainian government solvent and afloat, uh, only about 40% of that has actually come from the United States. The remainder has come mostly from Europe. Um, so where they actually did have some liquidity, I think they actually have pitched in to a degree that is more or less appropriate. Um, but given how how much they were leaning on U.S. defense spending for so many years to prop up the NATO alliance and even the U.N. to a degree, um, it's just not realistic to expect the majority of them to pivot around and give everything that they have to the Ukrainians. Now, that said... Estonia gave one third of its military like aid <laughs> to to Ukraine. Poland's given an astronomical amount. Like the countries that do see this as a threat, they have invested appropriately. Uh, but it's like the French and the Spanish who are pushing for a negotiated settlement because this doesn't. It's not at risk of touching them immediately. Yeah, so, I mean, there I, you go. the thing, the inference I draw from this is that you know, despite what people might think, Europe is a very heterogeneous place, and one of the issues with the eurozone crisis in the early two thousand tens was that you had Germany and Greece on the same common currency. And the economic interests of Greece at the time were very different than that of Germany. And in the same way, um, you know, if the EU was going to emerge as a defense block, um, which it isn't, hasn't really, um, you know, since its inception, uh, the interests of someone like France and Spain are, again, very different than someone like Poland. That doesn't have a point to it. It's just amusing that I thought about as we've uh, been having this discussion, but um, you know, is there, there are any other topics we should address on the endless war? Because I think I do want to move on to um, kind of the moral component that Mike highlighted. Um, you know, I feel like we've kind of covered a lot of ground. So if you guys have any closing thoughts, we can address them and otherwise uh, move on. Very quickly, I think some of those interests are narrowing. Uh, the more Russia's like kind of energy blackmail ramps up, the French and Germans, uh, you know, are spending thousands of dollars more than they usually would on energy, electricity, and, you know, more clearly now see uh, the Kremlin as a threat, even if not direct military, uh, other, you know, threats to their society. I don't have anything else to add on to this uh, particular section. Well, let's lead it into uh, your topic that you brought to the table today, which is kind of the moral component. You know, obviously, thus far, we've been discussing um, the strategic U.S. interests in Ukrainian assistance in a very um, bloodless manner. Like, there's, there's no morality here. This is a good deal, whether or not you care about the Ukrainian people at all. But, um, Mike, you've been kind of approaching this topic from a different angle and are about to make the case, you know, why someone who's on the fence or, you know, marginally anti-Ukraine or whatever in the U.S., um, why should they care? Right. So I think everything that you guys have said so far, uh, it makes a lot of sense and could potentially be convincing to people who are not um, assured of the moral superiority of Ukraine's case. Right. It's just cold, hard realpolitik. And 
you could argue that ignoring cold, hard realpolitik is what got us into this mess in the first place. Okay. Um, but you don't have a complete argument without taking both the idealistic side of things and the pragmatic side of things into account. And in this particular case, I think it's very, very black and white. Um, I think Ukraine might have some culpability in not doing its best to avoid the war, but this is 800 years we're talking about of Russia attempting to stamp out or russify this part of the world because geographically it was of great interest to them. Um, and at this particular point in time, Ukraine finally has an opportunity to actually have its independence, to actually have its country. They've only like had it for a very, like basically like Ukrainian independence was a real flash in the pan early in the 20th century. And now it's actually, you know, something achievable. And they've only had it for 30 years at this point. And Russia's already trying to stamp it out. Um, like in a lot of ways, it's like, I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say that people haven't already seen on TV, the kinds of scenes that, are playing out here, like the things that Russia is using as a weapon of war are essentially just terror, unmitigated strikes on civilian infrastructure. Um, things I don't want to really get into. Like we all saw what happened in Bucha. That's probably too graphic to Mass even graves. discuss here. Mass graves. And um, it was not the only place that we've uncovered those sorts of things. And uh, you know, and, and like to be, to be absolutely clear about this, like one of the, when I was doing what's essentially oppa research for this episode, listening to what I thought were like, the strongest moral cases against Ukraine, pretty much every single person was framing the outbreak of hostilities in 2014 as the Eastern pro-Russian regions breaking away from a coup d'etat government because like they elected Yanukovych, that's who they wanted, that was their guy, and then a extremist-led crowd overthrew him with the backing of the U.S. and blah, blah, blah. Like, in no part of any of these people's analyses did they ever mention Igor Girkin, did they ever mention the FSB, did they ever mention the fact that it was Russian regulars who stormed the administrative centers in Luhansk and Donetsk, and Crimea for that matter. Like, the Russians fomented everything that's happening right now. There may have been internal disagreements before. That's fine. You can point to electoral maps that show Ukraine neatly divided between the east and western sides of the Dnieper, one side being pro-Ukrainian, wanting to tilt towards the west and the EU, and the other side ostensibly being pro-Russian in reality. I think they were just being apathetic. I can talk more about that if you want me to, because I live there. Well, and I think more important, the, that map has evaporated since the invasion, and now it's solidly pro-Ukrainian. Yeah. And more, and more importantly, we're two elections past that. And, pre, and pre-big invasion as well. Yeah, and we're, we're, we're literally two elections past that now. Zelensky is an Eastern Ukrainian, Russian-speaking Jew from the industrial city of Kriviri, where, like, people are more or less, like, I think a lot of people, t like, side note, I think a lot of people, again, like, they tend to confuse being pro-Russian with simply being politically apathetic because of how, like, Ukraine's course went post-fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, Mike's absolutely right that um, not only is this... Uh, you know, U.S. support for Ukraine in American interests, uh, it's the right thing to do, frankly, um, in supporting a democracy against a country that wants to commit genocide against it. Um, Ukraine is not a perfect country, not a perfect democracy, but they want to be like us. They want to be like the U.S. They want to be in the European Union. They want to buy American goods. They want to sell us their grain. Like, like these are all kind of good things that Ukraine wants to be integrated with the West. And it's in our interest to support that. And like Mike said, there's a huge moral case when we see kind of what is going on, what Russia is doing in not only Bucha, but Izium, Mariupol, 
uh, strikes on civilian infrastructure to basically freeze people to death um, in the winter. These sorts of things, you know, it makes it only clearer. And as Mike said, like I don't know what to tell you if you if you don't have uh, you know some sympathy for Ukraine at this point that these people just want to survive and create the lives that they want to create, which just happens to be more aligned with the West. Exactly. And so I kind of want to slip in a counter argument that might be out there, which is, okay, there's lots of places in the world that have lots of problems. Why is this particularly deserving of our attention? And Mike, you and I were discussing this um, prior to recording. And I think there's there's something to point out here, which is Andrew um, highlighted it really good, which is this is a country that whatever flaws it may have is strongly yearning to be part of the West, broadly speaking. And again, the West includes stuff like Japan and Australia, which is not the geographic West. It's a nebulous term. But, um, you know, to con- to contrast um, whatever the U.S. is doing in Ukraine with the adventurism in Afghanistan, Afghanistan was not a Western nation. It was never going to become one. It had centuries of its own institutions, its own problems, its own buildup that, you know, whatever our thoughts of... Um, you know, spreading democracy uh, and the Bush doctrine and whatever, it, w- it wasn't going to happen, realistically speaking, looking back at it. There is, if you were to compare Ukraine to a place like Afghanistan, you can see the differences immediately, like not just in terms of geography, which matters, but like in terms of the fact that it was a democracy prior to this conflict, um, the fact that it was working towards ascension to the EU, not, and obviously there's not any EU in Afghanistan, but you, you get the point, all these sorts of things. Um, so... You, you know, there is a difference between a place like Ukraine and a lot of the other um, countries in the world, many of which have problems. And, you know, that is obviously regrettable. But uh, it, it is how the people see themselves and what their aspirations are rather than just like stamping out conflict. It's OK. What next? Ukraine actually has freedom of speech enshrined in its constitution. Russia obviously does not. You know, Ukraine has many institutions that are broadly aligned with the Western way and of modeled on our institutions. Um, modeled on our institutions as well modeled on our institutions yeah that's correct and like and and do they institute these things perfectly of course not they've only had this constitution in existence for 30 years and they didn't have an entire ideological revolution the way that we did back when we had our independence but like you know when you talk to ukrainians it's like and you and you ask them about basic human rights and how politics ought to be shaped and they and they get it they get it I think there's, I mean, it's it's not paradise. They've got a lot of their own issues. There's way too much tolerance, I think, of petty corruption that leads to broader scale corruption. But like, you know, they've only been a country, <laughs> only been a country in the sense that they are now for the last 30 years, and they deserve a chance to get it right. And they deserve a chance to live in their own country, speak their own language, and like plot their own course and reap the benefits or the consequences of those decisions. But Russia doesn't want to allow them to have that because they want the territory. They want the geostrategic... Yeah geostrategic leverage yeah there's um there's kind of another element of morality here that's a bit one step removed from the you should care about these people which actually sort of reverts it back to the way i was thinking of their argumentation which is what is the u.s interest in these sorts of things and i think the answer is actually twofold one is um you know it's the second order effects of okay what happens if you set the international precedent that a stronger neighbor with nuclear weapons can swallow up its weaker ally, or neighbor, excuse me. Um, you know, what, what does, how, how does that play out down the road? And um, again, this is different than, the, than what we've been saying so far, but if you put your admiration or lack thereof to the Ukraine, of the Ukrainian people to a side for a second, then you can see it's actually, again, in the U.S. interest to prevent this sort of precedent from 
becoming precedent in the world. And, um, you know, because that leads to all sorts of bad uh, things down the pike, like Taiwan being the most obvious example. I think the comparisons between um, Taiwan and Ukraine are overdone and overwrought, but, you know, there is something to it. And secondly, and I'm monologuing a bit, I apologize, but there is also the element that U.S. international relations, diplomacy, all this sort of stuff depends in some way on our moral status. And, you know, there, there's lots of people um, on the far right and far right left um, who will say, no, the U.S. is a malign force for the world. It does not do good. But uh, there was a meme that was really going around during the Hong Kong protests prior to its, um, you know, totally being subsumed by mainland China, which is be the, be the America that Hong Kong thinks you are. And there is an element of us, inter of, you know, again, this is different than Afghanistan, but us being able to help in the world by virtue of our power and make a positive impact. And I think this is one such case. And it's not in other conflicts in the world where there's not really a clear cut way that you can intervene and can help without making things worse. And again, we're talking a lot about the Middle East in this episode, but I think there is a very popular through line between the US's disastrous policy in the Middle East and people extrapolating that to Ukraine and what's going on in there now. And I think what you're saying is all the mo all the more urgent because, at least in my estimation, this may be the last chance that we have to actually show the world that we mean what we say. Um, there are many people who think that the timing of this suspiciously coming off the back of Afghanistan might not be a coincidence. Um, and, you know, that if you don't have a credible threat backing up your strength, then people are going to test those boundaries. Stalin famously would always push basically until he hit steel. He tested us in, in Berlin until we tried the Berlin airlift and were willing to let pilots die in shitty weather conditions just to keep the Western Berliners afloat amid a communist sea of red. Um, and the same thing, I'm sure, will be tested at some point in the South China Sea or in Taiwan. Or I, I don't know what's going to happen if and when Iran acquires nuclear weapons. But, you know, U.S. credibility has been questioned for the majority of my lifetime at this point. And... At this point, like, like leaving aside, like whether you thought we should have gotten into this mess in the first place, we're in it now. And if you choose to back out, like you are begetting a much worse crisis down the road, at least in my opinion. And I might just add quickly that uh, this has been Putin's strategy, too, is to push, prod, poke and find soft spots in the U.S. and in the Western alliance. And he's so far been successful basically until February 24th, uh, Estonia. Early in the 20th century, massive cyber attack by Russia didn't do anything. Uh, the Kremlin invades Georgia in 2008, no response. Uh, the, the Kremlin, uh, you know, Russian forces, little green men in Crimea, fomenting, uh, you know, Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine. The U.S. tosses a few sanctions on it. And then these are all punctuated by uh, resets, engagements with Putin. You know, so he uh, invades, gets a summit. And now we're kind of changing that. And I think that is a really strong moral signal, not only to malign actors like Putin or authoritarians, but also, like Mike said, to our allies and our you know, democratic partners all around the world. Yeah. I mean, does anybody legitimately think that Putin would have gone through with this if he had the foresight to see what was actually coming, if he knew the price that he was going to pay for this? Like, the, the thing that I want to impress upon people is that Strength is not nearly as provocative as weakness in these cases. When you give an opening, when you give a dictator like this an inch, they will attempt to take that inch, and then they'll see how much further they can push with it as well. Yeah. And that's just how it's always worked. That is exactly, I mean, this is like Sudetenland 101. Exactly. No, the, um, 
That's exactly correct. I mean, I think we should probably update this podcast slogan to be weaknesses provocative uh, at this point. Just, <laughs> but um, well, I mean, that's really cool because a big part of the reason the Cold War didn't get even hotter than it already was is because they saw how like crazy the Americans went in Korea. Like, like Stalin was sponsoring the North Koreans, didn't want to get his hands personally dirty, and like tried to rein the Chinese from getting directly involved until all was nearly lost, which worked. And uh, I think the entire reason you didn't see further interventions in Southeast Asia, the reason you didn't see further interventions in Europe is because they saw how Americans were willing to get down in the dirt in Korea and Vietnam for that matter. Um, for whatever, like, whatever you might think of those wars, we backed up what we said when we drew a line and said this will be containment along these lines. We meant it and we did it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. correct. And what I was going to say was – you know, in the moment of any individual war, there is obviously an inclination, um, you know, perhaps a good one, that is like, we want an end to this conflict, we want an end to bloodshed, this needs to stop. But at the same time, acquiescing along the, that, that line of reasoning without, like, doing the necessary work to prevent future wars will do just that, cause future wars, where if people think that they can take – the world is full of very mean, very bad people who will take every inch that you give them. And if you do not – in do actions that close off those, those those avenues of people trying to perform again perform malign actions again down the road. You're just going to keep getting the same thing over and over again. If you do not send, and this is exactly what Mike's saying, just repeating it. If you do not send a clear signal that this will is not acceptable and will be met with force, and you will suffer for your actions, and then people are just going to keep doing it. Um, you know, it's like if you don't if you don't prosecute uh, robberies, you're going to get more of them, and this is just robberies on the international scale, really. Um, you know, and so, so this is this is kind of the other main argument against the war that we've so we've been kind of dancing before between the pro and anti side on this. Um, but this is really the the topic of um, you know one other thing that we that we haven't really discussed along the lines of the not wanting war is that Russia is in a unique scenario insofar as it has nuclear weapons and a lot of. Um, other conflicts in the world are not between nuclear powers. Um, and so I think th this, is, this is actually something that bears having its own section of the podcast to discuss because, you know, whatever you think about um, preventing bad actors in the world, the threat of Armageddon is obviously one that uh, sobers up any pie-in-the-sky talk. And, you know, none of us are old enough to have lived through the really concerning parts of the Cold War, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis or anything like that. But, um, you know, and we, and we have talked about... Uh, nuclear threats on this podcast before, but let's, um, let's kind of go there. So, I mean, you know, what, what would you, what, and I'll jump ball to either of you guys, what would you say to someone that says, yes, I support the Ukrainian people, everything that you said makes sense, but, you know, we can't risk nuclear Armageddon over a country that is across the world from us. And, you know, is it, that's just not our concern at this point. The, the costs are too high to care. Oh, you want to stop nuclear Armageddon? Like, stop Russia dropping a tactical nuke in Ukraine now and avoid setting the precedent that uh, nuclear weapons are legitimate weapons of war. This is the time to deter a Russian strike in Ukraine. And if Putin does press the button, and you know that has to go through all sorts of uh, military channels in Russia, so it's not that simple, um, if there is a nuclear strike in Ukraine, a massive Western response is so crucial here. Because if you don't want nuclear Armageddon, Frankly, that's not what we're talking about right now in Ukraine. Um, if you don't want nuclear Armageddon, we're talking about massive nuclear prolifer proliferation, preventing that, and then preventing 
um, other bad actors from using nuclear weapons in war and avoiding setting that precedent. So if you don't want Armageddon, now is the time to uh, prevent that precedent from being set. So, Mike, I'm going to have you jump in in a second, but Andrew, I just want to push back slightly because, you know, I think the concern is not over the use of a singular tactical, however horrible it would be, is not the concern over a single tacular, tacular nuke um, in Ukraine, but rather the fact that once you start down that escalatory ladder, you don't know where things end up. And, you know, the Western response, however, or even the global response, like China and India might get involved, but once you kind of start down that road, you're not actually sure how things could end up. It could easily spiral out of control and as things happen in war. And the consequences of it is not just on the battlefield, but the, due to the power of the weapons being discussed here, it could result in Armageddon. So that's that's the just just to give the counter argument, um, it's best steel manning that I can. And Mike, I think yeah. No, let's 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 not tiptoe around potential consequences here because they're real. What you're saying is absolutely correct. We don't know where it could lead. Um, and I think a lot of people who want to pull out of this now are suffering from really an illusion of choice that we actually have a say in the matter at this point. Like, if if it comes to it and Putin drops a nuke and we don't respond, you're you're very likely to get the same threat rising again in the next 10 years when it comes to China and Taiwan. Like, you don't get to just run away. Like, at, at some point, you have to draw a line or it's going to be tested again and again and again. And we don't want to live in a world where only the worst among us who are willing to throw that threat around get to have their way. Um, and more importantly, I think this is actually the time to draw the line because I'm not at all convinced that Russia would actually use the nukes. Like, Putin doesn't just have a big red button sitting at his desks. There are several layers of command that he has to go through to make this happen. And I'm kind of of the mind that at the point at which Putin feels like his back is up against the wall in Ukraine and has to use a nuke in order to achieve battlefield success, not that I actually think it would even bring him that, like, he's going to be a lot more concerned about keeping his own power domestically than he is about winning that war. And if you're a Russian general, like, do you really want to go down with Putin? Because that nuke is a suicide weapon and they all know it. Um, and so, like, you have to come at this almost like from an economical, like a personal economical perspective. Like, if I've got the ability to sign off on this, but if I do, and that means that we all go through Armageddon or I go down with this regime, like, am I going to make that choice or am I going to back the next guy who poses a, uh, like, like, legitimate opposition towards Putin? It's like, this is not like, everyone keeps saying, like, Putin needs an off-ramp. This is existential for him. It's existential for Putin. It's not existential for Russia. It's not existential for the Russian people. There will continue to be a Russia after this war. So, I don't know, that that, that whole line of argument just doesn't... So, sorry, go go ahead. I can tell you want to jump in. No, Mike, I'm, I'm totally with you there. And I, I just want to go back to this escalatory ladder, because this is something that uh, we see on the, uh, I call it restrainer Twitter. Um on all these these uh, folks who worry about you know escalation, and I would put uh, our boy Emmanuel Macron on here as well. Um, that yeah, of course we don't know how wars are going to end up. That's like that's war. Um, and I mean Russians have do have this strategy of escalate to deescalate, um, and they have used this really effectively in you know nuclear threats to kind of uh, you know cow the West into not responding. And so I think. On the nuclear Armageddon point, a strong enough response to a Russian tactical strike in Ukraine uh, would actually decrease the likelihood of, you know, the nuclear Armageddon that some of the the folks who are, you know, forever climbing this this, uh, you know, uh, nuclear ladder, as it were, um, so fear. 
Well, what, what's he going to do? Like, like the actual use case for a nuke on the battlefield is you might blow up some Ukrainian troop concentrations if they allow you to, but they're not going to be that far off from Russian troop concentrations, and wind blows that kind of stuff all around, and you can't control who gets affected by the fallout. On the battle- Just to push back one second, I think, I think the use of a strategic nuclear weapon is, to, is not for the tactical use, but for the fear. Like for the fear. That, that's, that's really the, the argument I've been hearing. I, yeah, I think I think that's correct. Although I don't, <laughs> I don't think that would work either. Um, I can't remember if this was. <laughs> sorry, I can't remember if this was actual polling data. I don't know if I'm being data driven in this or not. But like Ukrainians, at least from my impression, have an overwhelming sense that this thing very well could happen to them, and they think about it more often than the Americans do. And yet, public support is still overwhelmingly on the side of continuing their fight. So. It's they're the ones who are looking to pay the go ahead pay the fear price and I, I I was just thinking of um the John Stuart Mill quote which we've referenced I believe on this show if not um the synopsis podcast before but war is an ugly thing but not the ugliest of things the decayed and graded, degraded state moral state and patriotic feeling which thinks that nothing is worth a war is much worse so you know that's that's Ukraine to a T right now and um yeah please clap please clap Jeb um explanation mark uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh so if if there's an if there's anything else you guys want to address on this topic there's um one more thing the i mean the only last note i would like to throw out sorry to interrupt once again but like the use of a strategic nuke in ukraine like russia is at this point completely reliant on its quote-unquote allies to keep it afloat uh, especially financially when it comes to the chinese there's no quicker way to push them away from you than to drop a nuke in Ukraine. I think Russia would immediately run itself out of every last friend in the world that it has. And as we covered before, no one is really like dying to be that close to them in the first place. Even Belarus has not actually sent troops into Ukraine. Andrew, any thoughts? Because one, I have one more topic on uh, our notes that I wanted to... Okay, great. Um, Mike, one thing you wrote down when we were doing this episode is that there might be some... And you touched on it um, earlier on when you were given your pro case, but that there might be some moral culpability on Ukraine for not doing its darndest to prevent the war. And um, I was wondering if you just wanted to flesh that out, because I know that is um, not necessarily a popular argument, but it is kind of a very um, intellectual argument that like um, does, does get some traction in some circles, and you wanted to bring this up. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty simple. Like, they, they felt slighted by what happened in 2014 when Russia effectively annexed well, well, they did annex Crimea and then fomented some sort of a breakaway in Luhansk and Donetsk. Again, like the true character of that is sort of, I think, it's been muddied to the point that it's almost, almost deserves its own episode at this point. Um, but there were ceasefire agreements on the table that laid out a roadmap to give like special autonomy um, and like referendums in Donetsk and Luhansk um, as well as Crimea. And, you know, very active political elements in Ukraine kind of held Zelensky's feet to the fire and wouldn't let him do it. And they knew it. And this was at a point when these like militias like the Azovs and the right sectors and whatever, they still held uh, enough of the, the, the oomph in the military of the country to actually be a legitimate threat. In reality, it's like, again, Azov is like less than a thousand dudes and its entire character, I think, has been blown out of proportion. We did an entire episode on this before. Um, but... There were people like high up in the Ukrainian circles that were predicting this for a while that thought that the war was nearly inevitable. Like the, the thing about Ukraine is it sits in a big, open, flat, nearly indefensible piece of terrain um, on a macro scale. Like obviously you can have woods and stage ambushes and things, but by and large, the country's very flat. There's no mountain ranges, right? There's one big river that cuts the country in two. Um, and it sits at the crossroads of many different societies and civilizations. And it's always kind of been run by these greater 
empires. Like Ukraine, Ukrainian society has kind of always existed like horizontally next to these imperial forces from abroad that control the power centers in the country. But yeah, I, 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 yeah, that's, um, I, I saw um, Andrew raising his hand at some point there. Yeah, before before we go into big, deep, big history talk about Ukraine, I just want to nail down on the the facts of the um, uh, federalization kind of agreements that we were talking about uh, that that uh, were part of the Steinmeier formula that Zelensky uh, was kind of weighing. Um, and part of this that Russia refused to agree to, which is the key element of this, was uh, Ukraine was down to federalize and have Donetsk and Luhansk have some. Um, extra rights, rights to Russian language, Russian schools, certain things like that, certain bits of autonomy. The key sticking point was control over the Ukrainian-Russian border proper, right? Russia wanted control over the border. Ukraine wanted control over the border. If Ukraine had ceded control of that border to Russia, you would de facto have you know, those parts as a part of Russia and would ac- actually not be a federalized part of Ukraine. So that was the key sticking point rather than your Azovs, your right sectors, your whatever, it was Russia not basically being too stubborn in negotiations when, uh, you know, th- there were real proposals on the table. Yeah. Um, Mike, did you, did you just want to kind of want to finish up your uh, geography? Yeah, point so, yeah. So, so I'll, I'll be a little less eggheaded about it. Um, <laughs> Please. <laughs> the, the point, the point that I'm trying to make is that, um, there's been a lot of talk about why can't Ukraine just choose neutrality? Well, the reason Ukraine can't choose neutrality is because the reality is neutrality is extremely expensive and difficult to maintain for any country. And when you think about the countries in Europe that have actually successfully maintained that for any length of time, be it like Sweden or Switzerland, both of them have, maybe this isn't as common knowledge as it is for me, but like both of them have like legendarily competent military armed forces. Sweden has an entire domestic industry that can produce like firearms, fighter jets, all kinds of things that are a rarity anywhere else in the world where they typically just have to import these things from the people who do make them. Um, Switzerland has been a military powerhouse for centuries. Per, yeah, you know, and per I, I think the point that you were um, going to make that you didn't really finish up is that because you were starting with geography is that they also have highly defensible geography as well as my understanding, which is something that Ukraine lacks. That, yes, that right. as well. That which as well. Yes, deal. exactly. And, and, and Ukraine lacks that has a much larger border and it shares it with, again, like the second biggest military in the world. So like there was just never going to be a world in which Ukraine could just choose its own path and not side somewhat with either the NATO or Western led alliance or Russia, and that is why the, the push and pull has been so persistent throughout their history. And so there's a lot of people who were saying, well, if, if Ukraine went the Western path, of course Russia was going to intervene. Like, how could you not see that? Um, so, like, that that's the counter. No, I was going to say, and we've, we've kind of talked about a lot of these elements um, before in previous podcasts, and so don't uh, really want to rehash, but... Um, you know, given given the time that we've been on this, I think uh, it's about high time we draw to a close. So if there's any arguments that, you know, for or against that either of you guys want to bring up that we haven't touched on, let's uh, get those and then get out of here. Can I quickly bring up what I call the the let's do diplomacy okay crowd? Um, <laughs> which, <laughs> if, you, if you heard all this silliness about the, the Congressional Progressive Caucus and their uh, letter this past week, basically... Um, encouraging uh, the Biden administration to engage in direct diplomatic talks with Russia, while also somehow in their letter talking about, oh, oh, but Ukraine, you know, must decide for themselves the conditions of diplomacy, ignoring how muddled the messaging of the letter was itself. We have seen from both the right and the left the like, oh, I support Ukraine, but 
why don't we just not have a war? Why doesn't the U.S. and Russia just talk about this? And A, like that is completely unfeasible because uh, Russia is not a serious negotiator in this. They've never been a reliable uh, interlocutor basically since December of last year when talking about this sort of thing. And something incumbent in what we've already talked about is currently any ceasefire or peaceful alliance would really set the stage for uh, another Russian attack. Russia, as we said, will take one inch and then try to take a mile sort of thing. So yeah. the fear is that they'll simply use the time exactly. to prepare exactly. another attack later down the line, which is exactly what they did in Chechnya. Exactly. And one, one point I wanted to highlight on what you just said, Andrew, is that there is this kind of diplomacy first crowd out there that thinks that diplomacy and just talking to people is this magic tool that can solve all ails. I like to think of the uh, Clausewitz quote, which is, war is just the continuation of politics through other means. And the corollary to that is that diplomacy is a continuation of war through other means. Like, diplomacy means nothing if you are not able to enforce your will. And just talking about things endlessly doesn't really get you anywhere. Because at the end of the day, the geostrategic realities are going to dictate the scope of the conversation. Because if, you know, if one, you know, if there's, there's two parties in a negotiation, one is losing in every aspect and it's just a matter of time before they're totally subsumed at no great cost to the other party, then what reason does the powerful party have any reason to negotiate? They don't. Um, so, yeah, that, that's... The, uh, the other thing I think that crowd that Andrew brought up isn't paying attention to is that they're the only ones who are actually bringing up these negotiation terms. Putin's not the one offering them. The Russians haven't even said that this is something that they're, that they're open to considering, whatever it is that the progressives or the hard right is talking about. Um, we're, like, making up these terms for them. Yeah, offering so, and, and when they And when they do discuss terms, it's something absurd. Like, we want to keep this entire land bridge that we've conquered in Ukraine, which is re, which is which could only be used as a launching pad for further incursions into Ukraine later down the line. Like, to give a sense of what's actually happened, like, yes, Russia has, like, suffered a military setback in Ukraine, but the vast majority of Ukraine's indigenous industry has been completely destroyed. Right, Ukraine was a big producer of agriculture, a big producer of steel, both, and the majority of the steelworks were actually out in the east in the areas that have either been outright conquered or just shelled into oblivion by these cruise missile strikes. Like Russia has systematically done anything that it can to prevent the Ukrainian government from being solvent and to force the Western world to prop it up. So if we allow Russia to just keep a hold of what it's had now, like that's going to mean a Ukraine that is connected to the umbilical, po umbilical cord of Western political will for the next 20 years at least. Um, and like, that's a really scary proposition to me because I think I think that leads directly into a second war with Ukraine. Yeah, y you know, I think the savvy, the savvy analysis of World War One and World War Two is that they're just continuations of the same war and in the same way here, uh, you know, a freezing of the conflict does not necessarily prevent another conflict if it is still in Russia's interests and capacities to um, launch another assault on Ukraine. Andrew, last word if you have any final thoughts, otherwise we're getting out of here. Yeah, we've seen this as a frozen conflict. That was uh, 2017 to 2022, and uh, we're in 2022 right now. Yeah. All right. So with that, uh, we wanted to thank all our listeners for tuning in to yet another episode of the Ukrainian Provcast. Uh, we do have a mailbag uh, coming up down the road. So if you have any questions, please email them to us at theukrainianprovcast at gmail.com. That is theukrainianprovcast at gmail.com. No spaces, no periods, no nothing like that. And if your question is as ill-conceived of such ill repute and is just as stupid as everything else you've heard on this show so far, we will read it on air because that is the sort of content that we are looking for. Just dumb and reprehensible <laughs> stuff. Um, so on behalf of Mike, Andrew, and myself, uh, we'll be back again with another episode soon. But in the meantime, keep up the fight. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
Ukrainian Provcast is co-hosted by Sam Bach and Michael Williamson. Audio production by Mark Fusito. Artwork by Eli Bach. Oh, we'll